Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Section 9 of To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 18 As usual, Lily thought, there was always something that had to be done at that precise moment, something that Mrs. Ramsay had decided for reasons of her own to do instantly. It might be with everyone standing about making jokes, as now, not being able to decide whether they were going into the smoking-room, into the drawing-room, up to the attics. Then one saw Mrs. Ramsay in the midst of this hubbub, standing there with Minta's arm in hers, bethink her, yes, it is time for that now and so make off at once with an air of secrecy to do something alone. And directly she went a sort of disintegration set in. They wavered about, went different ways. Mr. Banks took Charles Tansley by the arm and went off to finish on the terrace the discussion they had begun at dinner about politics, thus giving a turn to the whole poise of the evening, making the weight fall in a different direction, as if, Lily thought, seeing them go, and hearing a word or two about the policy of the Labour Party, they had gone up on to the bridge of the ship, and were taking their bearings. The change from poetry to politics struck her like that. So Mr. Banks and Charles, Mrs. Ramsay going upstairs in the lamplight alone. Where, Lily wondered, was she going so quickly? Not that she did, in fact, run or hurry. She went indeed rather slowly. She felt rather inclined, just for a moment, to stand still after all that chatter, and pick out one particular thing, the thing that mattered, to detach it, separate it off, clean it of all the emotions and odds and ends of things, and so hold it before her, and bring it to the tribunal, where, ranged about in conclave, sat the judges she had set up to decide these things. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it right or wrong? where are we all going to?" and so on. So she righted herself after the shock of the event, and quite unconsciously and incongruously used the branches of the elm-trees outside to help her stabilise her position. Her world was changing, they were still. The event had given her a sense of movement. All must be in order. She must get that right and that right, she thought, insensibly approving of the dignity of the tree's stillness, and now again of the superb upward rise, like the beak of a ship up a wave, of the elm-branches as the wind raised them. For it was windy. She stood a moment to look out. It was windy, so that the leaves now and then brushed open a star, and the stars themselves seemed to be shaking and darting light, and trying to flash out between the edges of the leaves. Yes. That was done then, accomplished, and as with all things done, became solemn. Now one thought of it, cleared of chatter and emotion, it seemed always to have been, only was shown now, and so, being shown, struck everything into stability. They would, she thought, going on again, however long they lived, come back to this night, this moon, this wind, this house and to her too. It flattered her, where she was most susceptible of flattery, to think how, wound about in their hearts, however long they lived, 
she would be woven. And this, and this, and this, she thought, going upstairs laughing, but affectionately, at the sofa on the landing, her mother's, at the rocking-chair, her father's, at the map of the Hebrides. All that would be revived again in the lives of Paul and Minta. The Rayleighs, she tried the new name over, and she felt, with her hand on the nursery door, that community of feeling with other people which emotion gives, as if the walls of partition had become so thin that, practically, the feeling was one of relief and happiness, it was all one stream, and chairs, tables, maps, were hers, were theirs, it did not matter whose, and Paul and Minta would carry it on when she was dead. She turned the handle, firmly, lest it should squeak, and went in, pursing her lips slightly, as if to remind herself that she must not speak aloud. But directly she came in she saw, with annoyance, that the precaution was not needed. The children were not asleep. It was most annoying. Mildred should be more careful. There was James wide awake, and Cam sitting bolt upright, and Mildred out of bed in her bare feet, and it was almost eleven and they were all talking. What was the matter? It was that horrid skull again. She had told Mildred to move it, but Mildred, of course, had forgotten, and now there was Cam wide awake, and James wide awake, quarrelling when they ought to have been asleep hours ago. What had possessed Edward to send them this horrid skull? She had been so foolish as to let them nail it up there. It was nailed fast, Mildred said, and Cam couldn't go to sleep with it in the room, and James screamed if she touched it. Then Cam must go to sleep. It had great horns, said Cam. Must go to sleep, and dream of lovely palaces, said Mrs. Ramsay, sitting down on the bed by her side. She could see the horns, Cam said, all over the room. It was true. Wherever they put the light—and James could not sleep without a light—there was always a shadow somewhere. "'But think, Cam, it's only an old pig,' said Mrs. Ramsay. "'A nice black pig, like the pigs at the farm.' But Cam thought it was a horrid thing, branching at her all over the room. "'Well, then,' said Mrs. Ramsay, "'we will cover it up.' And they all watched her go to the chest of drawers, and open the little drawers quickly one after another, and not seeing anything that would do, she quickly took her own shawl off and wound it round the skull, round and round and round, and then she came back to Cam and laid her head almost flat on the pillow beside Cam's, and said how lovely it looked now, how the fairies would love it, it was like a bird's nest, it was like a beautiful mountain such as she had seen abroad, with valleys and flowers and bells ringing and birds singing and little goats and antelopes and— She could see the words echoing as she spoke them rhythmically in Cam's mind and Cam was repeating after her how it was like a mountain, a bird's nest, a garden, and there were little antelopes, and her eyes were opening and shutting, and Mrs. Ramsay went on speaking still more monotonously, and more rhythmically, and more nonsensically, how she must shut her eyes and go to sleep, and dream of mountains and valleys and stars falling and parrots and antelopes and gardens, and everything lovely, she said raising her head very slowly, and speaking more and more mechanically, until she sat upright and saw that Cam was asleep. Now, 
she whispered, crossing over to his bed. James must go to sleep, too. For see, she said, the boar's skull was still there. They had not touched it. They had done just what he wanted. It was there quite unhurt. He made sure that the skull was still there under the shawl. But he wanted to ask her something more. Would they go to the lighthouse to-morrow? No, not to-morrow, she said. But soon, she promised him, the next fine day. He was very good. He lay down. She covered him up. But he would never forget, she knew, and she felt angry with Charles Tansley, with her husband, and with herself, for she had raised his hopes. Then, feeling for her shawl, and remembering that she had wrapped it round the boar's skull, she got up and pulled the window down another inch or two, and heard the wind, and got a breath of the perfectly indifferent chill night air, and murmured good-night to Mildred, and left the room, and let the tongue of the door slowly lengthen in the lock, and went out. She hoped he would not bang his books on the floor above their heads, she thought, still thinking how annoying Charles Tansley was. For neither of them slept well, they were excitable children, and since he said things like that about the lighthouse, it seemed to her likely that he would knock a pile of books over, just as they were going to sleep, clumsily sweeping them off the table with his elbow. For she supposed that he had gone upstairs to work. Yet he looked so desolate. Yet she would feel relieved when he went. Yet she would see that he was better treated to-morrow. Yet he was admirable with her husband. Yet his manners certainly wanted improving. Yet she liked his laugh. Thinking this, as she came downstairs, she noticed that she could now see the moon itself through the staircase window, the yellow harvest moon, and turned, and they saw her standing above them on the stairs. "'That's my mother,' thought Prue. "'Yes, Minta should look at her, Paul Rayleigh should look at her. That is the thing itself,' she felt, as if there were only one person like that in the world, her mother. And, from having been quite grown up a moment before, talking with the others, she became a child again, and what they had been doing was a game, and would her mother sanction their game or condemn it, she wondered. And thinking what a chance it was for Minta and Paul and Lily to see her, and feeling what an extraordinary stroke of fortune it was for her to have her, and how she would never grow up and never leave home, she said, like a child, "'We thought of going down to the beach to watch the waves.' Instantly, for no reason at all, Mrs. Ramsay became like a girl of twenty, full of gaiety. A mood of revelry suddenly took possession of her. "'Of course they must go, of course they must go,' she cried, laughing. And, running down the last three or four steps quickly, she began turning from one to the other, and laughing, and drawing Minta's wrap round her, and saying she only wished she could come too, and would they be very late, and had any of them got a watch. "'Yes, Paul has,' said Minta. Paul slipped a beautiful gold watch out of a little wash-leather case to show her. And as he held it in the palm of his hand before her, he felt, "'She knows all about it. I need not say anything.' He was saying to her, as he showed her the watch, "'I've done it, Mrs. Ramsay. I owe it all to you.' And seeing the gold watch lying in his hand, Mrs. Ramsay felt, how extraordinarily lucky Minter is! 
she is marrying a man who has a gold watch in a wash-leather bag. "'How I wish I could come with you!' she cried. But she was withheld by something so strong that she never even thought of asking herself what it was. Of course it was impossible for her to go with them. But she would have liked to go, had it not been for the other thing, and tickled by the absurdity of her thought, how lucky to marry a man with a wash-leather bag for his watch, she went, with a smile on her lips, into the other room, where her husband sat reading. CHAPTER Nineteen. Of course, she said to herself, coming into the room, she had to come here to get something she wanted. First she wanted to sit down in a particular chair under a particular lamp. But she wanted something more, though she did not know, could not think, what it was that she wanted. She looked at her husband, taking up her stocking and beginning to knit, and saw that he did not want to be interrupted, that was clear. He was reading something that moved him very much. He was half smiling, and then she knew he was controlling his emotion. He was tossing the pages over. He was acting it. Perhaps he was thinking himself the person in the book. She wondered what book it was. Oh, it was one of old Sir Walter's, she saw, adjusting the shade of her lamp so that the light fell on her knitting. For Charles Tansley had been saying, she looked up as if she expected to hear the crash of books on the floor above, had been saying that people don't read Scott any more. Then her husband thought, that's what they'll say of me. So he went and got one of those books. And if he came to the conclusion, that's true, what Charles Tansley said, he would accept it about Scott. She could see that he was weighing, considering, putting this with that as he read. But not about himself. He was always uneasy about himself. That troubled her. He would always be worrying about his own books. Will they be read? Are they good? Why aren't they better? What do people think of me?" Not liking to think of him so, and wondering if they had guessed at dinner why he suddenly became irritable when they talked about fame and books lasting, wondering if the children were laughing at that, she twitched the stockings out, and all the fine gravings came drawn with steel instruments about her lips and forehead, and she grew still like a tree which has been tossing and quivering, and now, when the breeze falls, settles, leaf by leaf, into quiet. It didn't matter, any of it, she thought. A great man, a great book, fame, who could tell? She knew nothing about it. But it was his way with him, his truthfulness. For instance, at dinner she had been thinking quite instinctively, if only he would speak. She had complete trust in him. And, dismissing all this, as one passes in diving, now a weed, now a straw, now a bubble, she felt again, sinking deeper, as she had felt in the hall when the others were talking. There is something I want, something I have come to get. And she fell deeper and deeper, without knowing quite what it was, with her eyes closed. And she waited a little, knitting, wondering and slowly rose those words they had said at dinner. The china rose is all abloom and buzzing with the honey-bee. Began washing from side to side of her mind rhythmically, and as they washed, words, 
like little shaded lights, one red, one blue, one yellow, lit up in the dark of her mind, and seemed leaving their perches up there to fly across and across, or to cry out and to be echoed. So she turned and felt on the table beside her for a book. And all the lives we ever lived, and all the lives to be, are full of trees and changing leaves," she murmured, sticking her needles into the stocking. And she opened the book and began reading here and there at random, and as she did so she felt that she was climbing backwards, upwards, shoving her way up under petals that curved over her, so that she only knew this is white or this is red. She did not know at first what the words meant at all. Steer. Hither steer your winged pines, all beaten mariners," she read, and turned the page, swinging herself, zigzagging this way and that, from one line to another, as from one branch to another, from one red and white flower to another, until a little sound roused her, her husband slapping his thighs. Their eyes met for a second, but they did not want to speak to each other. They had nothing to say but something seemed, nevertheless, to go from him to her. It was the life, it was the power of it, it was the tremendous humour, she knew, that made him slap his thighs. Don't interrupt me, he seemed to be saying, don't say anything, just sit there. And he went on reading. His lips twitched. It filled him, it fortified him. He clean forgot all the little rubs and digs of the evening, and how it bored him unutterably to sit still while people ate and drank interminably, and his being so irritable with his wife, and so touchy, and minding when they passed his books over as if they didn't exist at all. But now, he felt, it didn't matter a damn who reached Z, if thought ran like an alphabet from A to Z. Somebody would reach it, if not he then another. This man's strength and sanity, his feeling for straightforward simple things, these fishermen, the poor old crazed creature in Mucklebacket's cottage, made him feel so vigorous, so relieved of something that he felt roused and triumphant, and could not choke back his tears. Raising the book a little to hide his face, he let them fall, and shook his head from side to side, and forgot himself completely but not one or two reflections about morality and French novels and English novels, and Scott's hands being tied, but his own view perhaps being as true as the other view, forgot his own bothers and failures completely in poor Steenie's drowning, and Mucklebacket's sorrow—that was Scott at his best—and the astonishing delight and feeling of vigour that it gave him. Well, let them improve upon that, he thought, as he finished the chapter. He felt that he had been arguing with somebody, and had got the better of him. They could not improve upon that, whatever they might say, and his own position became more secure. The lovers were fiddlesticks, he thought, collecting it all in his mind again. "'That's fiddlesticks, that's first-rate,' he thought, putting one thing beside another. But he must read it again. He could not remember the whole shape of the thing. He had to keep his judgment in suspense. So he returned to the other thought. If young men did not care for this, naturally they did not care for him either. One ought not to complain, thought Mr. Ramsay, 
trying to stifle his desire to complain to his wife that young men did not admire him. But he was determined he would not bother her again. Here he looked at her reading. She looked very peaceful reading. He liked to think that every one had taken themselves off, and that he and she were alone. The whole of life did not consist in going to bed with a woman, he thought, returning to Scott and Balzac, to the English novel and the French novel. Mrs. Ramsay raised her head, and like a person in a light sleep, seemed to say that if he wanted her to wake she would, she really would, but otherwise might she go on sleeping just a little longer, just a little longer. She was climbing up those branches, this way and that, laying hands on one flower and then another. Nor praise the deep vermilion in the rose, she read, and so reading she was ascending, she felt, on to the top, on to the summit. How satisfying, how restful! All the odds and ends of the day stuck to this magnet, her mind felt swept, felt clean. And then there it was, suddenly entire, she held it in her hands, beautiful and reasonable, clear and complete. Here, the sonnet. But she was becoming conscious of her husband looking at her. He was smiling at her, quizzically, as if he were ridiculing her gently for being asleep in broad daylight. But at the same time he was thinking, go on reading. You don't look sad now, he thought. And he wondered what she was reading, and exaggerated her ignorance, her simplicity, for he liked to think that she was not clever, not book-learned at all. He wondered if she understood what she was reading. Probably not, he thought. She was astonishingly beautiful. Her beauty seemed to him, if that were possible, to increase. Yet seemed it winter still and you away, as with your shadow I with these did play, she finished. Well, she said, echoing his smile dreamily, looking up from her book. As with your shadow I with these did play, she murmured, putting the book on the table. What had happened, she wondered, as she took up her knitting, since she had seen him alone? She remembered dressing and seeing the moon, Andrew holding his plate too high at dinner, being depressed by something William had said. The birds in the trees, the sofa on the landing, the children being awake, Charles Tansley waking them with his books falling—oh, no, that she had invented—and Paul having a wash-leather case for his watch. Which should he tell them about? "'They're engaged,' she said, beginning to knit. "'Paul and Minta.' "'So I guessed,' he said. There was nothing very much to be said about it. Her mind was still going up and down, up and down with the poetry. He was still feeling very vigorous, very forthright, after reading about Steenie's funeral. So they sat silent. Then she became aware that she wanted him to say something. Anything, anything, she thought, going on with her knitting, anything will do. How nice it would be to marry a man with a wash-leather bag for his watch, she said for that was the sort of joke they had together. He snorted. He felt about this engagement as he always felt about any engagement. The girl is much too good for that young man. Slowly it came into her head. 
Why is it, then, that one wants people to marry? What was the value, the meaning of things? Every word they said now would be true. Do say something, she thought, wishing only to hear his voice. For the shadow, the thing folding them in, was beginning, she felt, to close round her again. Say anything, she begged, looking at him, as if for help. He was silent, swinging the compass on his watch-chain to and fro, and thinking of Scott's novels and Balzac's novels. But through the crepuscular walls of their intimacy, for they were drawing together, involuntarily, coming side by side, quite close, she could feel his mind like a raised hand shadowing her mind, and he was beginning, now that her thoughts took a turn he disliked, towards this pessimism, as he called it, to fidget, though he said nothing, raising his hand to his forehead, twisting a lock of hair, letting it fall again. "'You won't finish that stocking to-night,' he said, pointing to her stocking. That was what she wanted, the asperity in his voice reproving her. If he says it's wrong to be pessimistic, probably it is wrong, she thought, the marriage will turn out all right. No, she said, flattening the stocking out upon her knee, I shan't finish it. And what then? For she felt that he was still looking at her, but that his look had changed. He wanted something, wanted the thing she always found it so difficult to give him, wanted her to tell him that she loved him. And that, no, she could not do. He found talking so much easier than she did. He could say things, she never could. So naturally it was always he that said the things, and then for some reason he would mind this suddenly, and would reproach her. A heartless woman, he called her, she never told him that she loved him. But it was not so, it was not so. It was only that she could never say what she felt. Was there no crumb on his coat, nothing she could do for him? Getting up, she stood at the window with the reddish-brown stocking in her hands, partly to turn away from him, partly because she remembered how beautiful it often is, the sea at night. But she knew that he had turned his head as she turned, he was watching her. She knew that he was thinking, you are more beautiful than ever. And she felt herself very beautiful. Will you not tell me just for once that you love me? He was thinking that, for he was roused, what with Minter and his book, and their having quarrelled about going to the lighthouse. But she could not do it, she could not say it. Then, knowing that he was watching her, instead of saying anything she turned, holding her stocking, and looked at him. And as she looked at him she began to smile, for though she had not said a word, he knew, of course he knew, that she loved him. He could not deny it. And smiling she looked out of the window, and said, thinking to herself, nothing on earth can equal this happiness, "'Yes, you were right. It's going to be wet to-morrow. You won't be able to go.' And she looked at him, smiling. For she had triumphed again. She had not said it, yet he knew. End of section 9「Section 2 
time passes. Chapter One. Well, we must wait for the future to show," said Mr. Banks, coming in from the terrace. It's almost too dark to see," said Andrew, coming up from the beach. One can hardly tell which is the sea and which is the land," said Prue. "Do we leave that light burning?" said Lily, as they took their coats off indoors. "No," said Prue. "Not if everyone's in." Andrew," she called back. "Just put out the light in the hall." One by one, the lamps were all extinguished, except that Mr. Carmichael, who liked to lie awake a little reading Virgil, kept his candle burning rather longer than the rest. Chapter Two. So, with the lamps all put out, the moon sunk, and a thin rain drumming on the roof, a downpouring of immense darkness began. Nothing, it seemed, could survive the flood, the profusion of darkness, which, creeping in at keyholes and crevices, stole round window blinds, came into bedrooms, swallowed up here a jug and basin, there a bowl of red and yellow dahlias, there the sharp edges and firm bulk of a chest of drawers. Not only was furniture confounded, there was scarcely anything left of body or mind, by which one could say, this is he or this is she. Sometimes a hand was raised as if to clutch something or ward something off, or somebody groaned, or somebody laughed aloud, as if sharing a joke with nothingness. Nothing stirred in the drawing-room, or in the dining-room, or on the staircase. Only through the rusty hinges and swollen sea-moistened woodwork certain airs, detached from the body of the wind—the house was ramshackle, after all—crept round corners and ventured indoors. Almost one might imagine them, as they entered the drawing-room, questioning and wondering, toying with the flap of hanging wallpaper, asking, would it hang much longer, when would it fall? Then, smoothly brushing the walls, they passed on musingly, as if asking the red and yellow roses on the wallpaper whether they would fade, and questioning, gently, for there was time at their disposal, the torn letters in the waste-paper basket, the flowers, the books, all of which were now open to them, and asking, were they allies, were they enemies, how long would they endure? So some random light directing them with its pale footfall upon stair and mat, from some uncovered star, or wandering ship, or the lighthouse even, with its pale footfall upon stair and mat, the little airs mounted the staircase and nosed round bedroom doors. But here, surely, they must cease. Whatever else may perish and disappear, what lies here is steadfast. Here one might say to those sliding lights, those fumbling airs that breathe and bend over the bed itself, here you can neither touch nor destroy. Upon which, wearily, ghostily, as if they had feather-light fingers and the light persistency of feathers, they would look, once, on the shut eyes, and the loosely clasping fingers, and fold their garments wearily and disappear. And so, nosing, rubbing, they went to the window on the staircase, to the servants' bedrooms, to the boxes in the attics, descending, blanched the apples on the dining-room table, fumbled the petals of roses, tried the picture on the easel, brushed the mat and blew a little sand along the floor. At length, desisting, 
all ceased together, gathered together, all sighed together, altogether gave off an aimless gust of lamentation, to which some door in the kitchen replied, swung wide, admitted nothing, and slammed to. Here Mr. Carmichael, who was reading Virgil, blew out his candle. It was past midnight. CHAPTER Three. But what, after all, is one night? A short space, especially when the darkness dims so soon, and so soon a bird sings, a cock crows, or a faint green quickens, like a turning leaf in the hollow of the wave. Night, however, succeeds to night. The winter holds a pack of them in store, and deals them equally, evenly, with indefatigable fingers. They lengthen, they darken. Some of them hold aloft clear planets, plates of brightness. The autumn trees, ravaged as they are, take on the flash of tattered flags kindling in the gloom of cool cathedral caves, where gold letters on marble pages describe death in battle, and how bones bleach and burn far away in Indian sands. The autumn trees gleam in the yellow moonlight, in the light of harvest moons, the light which mellows the energy of labour and smooths the stubble, and brings the wave-lapping blue to the shore. It seemed now as if, touched by human penitence and all its toil, divine goodness had parted the curtain and displayed behind it, single, distinct, the hair erect, the wave falling, the boat rocking, which, did we deserve them, should be ours always. But alas, divine goodness, twitching the cord, draws the curtain. It does not please him. He covers his treasures in a drench of hail, and so breaks them, so confuses them, that it seems impossible that their calm should ever return, or that we should ever compose from their fragments a perfect whole, or read in the littered pieces the clear words of truth. For our penitence deserves a glimpse only, our toil respite only. The nights now are full of wind and destruction. The trees plunge and bend, and their leaves fly helter-skelter until the lawn is plastered with them, and they lie packed in gutters and choke drain-pipes and scatter damp paths. Also the sea tosses itself and breaks itself, and should any sleeper fancying that he might find on the beach an answer to his doubts, a sharer of his solitude, throw off his bedclothes and go down by himself to walk on the sand, no image with semblance of serving and divine promptitude comes readily to hand, bringing the night to order and making the world reflect the compass of the soul. The hand dwindles in his hand, the voice bellows in his ear. Almost it would appear that it is useless in such confusion to ask the night those questions as to what, and why, and wherefore, which tempt the sleeper from his bed to seek an answer. Mr. Ramsay stumbling along a passage one dark morning, stretched his arms out. But Mrs. Ramsay, having died rather suddenly the night before, his arms, though stretched out, remained empty. CHAPTER Four. So with the house empty, and the doors locked, and the mattresses rolled round, those stray heirs, advance guards of great armies, blustered in, brushed bare boards, nibbled and fanned, met nothing in bedroom or drawing-room that wholly resisted them, but only hangings that flapped, 
wood that creaked, the bare legs of tables, saucepans and china already furred, tarnished, cracked. What people had shed and left—a pair of shoes, a shooting-cap, some faded skirts and coats in wardrobes—those alone kept the human shape, and in the emptiness indicated how once they were filled and animated, how once hands were busy with hooks and buttons, how once the looking-glass had held a face, had held a world hollowed out in which a figure turned, a hand flashed, the door opened, in came children rushing and tumbling, and went out again. Now, day after day, light turned, like a flower reflected in water, its sharp image on the wall opposite. Only the shadows of the trees, flourishing in the wind, made obeisance on the wall, and for a moment darkened the pool in which light reflected itself, or birds, flying, made a soft spot flutter slowly across the bedroom floor. So loveliness reigned, and stillness, and together made the shape of loveliness itself, a form from which life had parted, solitary like a pool at evening, far distant, seen from a train window, vanishing so quickly that the pool, pale in the evening, is scarcely robbed of its solitude, though once seen. Loveliness and stillness clasped hands in the bedroom, and among the shrouded jugs and sheeted chairs, even the prying of the wind and the soft nose of the clammy sea-airs, rubbing, sniffing, iterating and reiterating their questions, "'Will you fade? Will you perish?' scarcely disturbed the peace, the indifference, the air of pure integrity, as if the question they asked scarcely needed that they should answer, "'We remain.' Nothing, it seemed, could break that image, corrupt that innocence, or disturb the swaying mantle of silence, which, week after week, in the empty room, wove into itself the falling cries of birds, ships hooting, the drone and hum of the fields, a dog's bark, a man's shout, and folded them round the house in silence. Once only a board sprang on the landing. Once, in the middle of the night, with a roar, with a rupture, as after centuries of quiescence, a rock rends itself from the mountain and hurtles crashing into the valley, one fold of the shawl loosened and swung to and fro. Then again peace descended, and the shadow wavered, light bent to its own image in adoration on the bedroom wall, and Mrs. MacNab, tearing the veil of silence with hands that had stood in the wash-tub, grinding it with boots that had crunched the shingle, came as directed to open all windows and dust the bedrooms. CHAPTER Five. As she lurched—for she rolled like a ship at sea—and leered—for her eyes fell on nothing directly, but with a sidelong glance that deprecated the scorn and anger of the world, she was witless, she knew it. As she clutched the banisters and hauled herself upstairs, and rolled from room to room, she sang. Rubbing the glass of the long looking-glass, and leering sideways at her swinging figure, a sound issued from her lips, something that had been gay twenty years before on the stage, perhaps, had been hummed and danced to, but now, coming from the toothless, bonneted, caretaking woman, was robbed of meaning, was like the voice of witlessness, humour, persistency itself, trodden down but springing up again, 
so that as she lurched, dusting, wiping, she seemed to say how it was one long sorrow and trouble, how it was getting up and going to bed again, and bringing things out and putting them away again. It was not easy or snug, this world she had known for close on seventy years. Bowed down she was with weariness. How long, she asked, creaking and groaning on her knees under the bed, dusting the boards, how long shall it endure? But hobbled to her feet again, pulled herself up, and again with her sidelong leer which slipped and turned aside even from her own face and her own sorrows, stood and gaped in the glass, aimlessly smiling, and began again the old amble and hobble, taking up mats, putting down china, looking sideways in the glass, as if, after all, she had her consolations, as if indeed there twined about her dirge some incorrigible hope. Visions of joy there must have been at the wash-tub, say with her children, yet two had been base-born and one had deserted her. At the public-house, drinking, turning over scraps in her drawers. Some cleavage of the dark there must have been, some channel in the depths of obscurity, through which light enough issued to twist her face grinning in the glass, and make her, turning to her job again, mumble out the old music-hall song. The mystic, the visionary, walking the beach on a fine night, stirring a puddle, looking at a stone, asking themselves, What am I? What is this? had suddenly an answer vouchsafed them. They could not say what it was, so that they were warm in the frost and had comfort in the desert. But Mrs. McNabb continued to drink and gossip as before. CHAPTER Six. The spring, without a leaf to toss, bare and bright like a virgin fierce in her chastity, scornful in her purity, was laid out on fields wide-eyed and watchful, and entirely careless of what was done or thought by the beholders. Prue Ramsay, leaning on her father's arm, was given in marriage. What, people said, could have been more fitting? And, they added, how beautiful she looked! As summer neared, as the evenings lengthened, there came to the wakeful, the hopeful, walking the beach, stirring the pool, imaginations of the strangest kind, of flesh turned to atoms which drove before the wind, of stars flashing in their hearts, of cliff, sea, cloud, and sky, brought purposely together, to assemble outwardly the scattered parts of the vision within. In those mirrors, the minds of men, in those pools of uneasy water, in which clouds forever turn and shadows form, dreams persisted, and it was impossible to resist the strange intimation which every gull, flower, tree, man and woman, and the white earth itself seemed to declare, but if questioned at once to withdraw, that good triumphs, happiness prevails, order rules, or to resist the extraordinary stimulus to range hither and thither, in search of some absolute good, some crystal of intensity, remote from the known pleasures and familiar virtues, something alien to the processes of domestic life, single, hard, bright, like a diamond in the sand, which would render the possessor secure. Moreover, softened and acquiescent, the spring with her bees humming and gnats dancing, 
threw her cloak about her, veiled her eyes, averted her head, and among passing shadows and flights of small rain seemed to have taken upon her a knowledge of the sorrows of mankind. Prue Ramsay died that summer in some illness connected with childbirth, which was indeed a tragedy, people said. Everything, they said, had promised so well. And now, in the heat of summer, the wind sent its spies about the house again. Flies wove a web in the sunny rooms. Weeds that had grown close to the glass in the night tapped methodically at the window-pane. When darkness fell, the stroke of the lighthouse, which had laid itself with such authority upon the carpet in the darkness, tracing its pattern, came now in the softer light of spring, mixed with moonlight gliding gently, as if it laid its caress and lingered stealthily, and looked and came lovingly again. But in the very lull of this loving caress, as the long stroke leant upon the bed, the rock was rent asunder, another fold of the shawl loosened, there it hung and swayed. Through the short summer nights and the long summer days, when the empty rooms seemed to murmur with the echoes of the fields and the hum of flies, the long streamer waved gently, swayed aimlessly, while the sun so striped and barred the rooms, and filled them with yellow haze, that Mrs. McNabb, when she broke in and lurched about, dusting, sweeping, looked like a tropical fish oaring its way through sun-lanced waters. But slumber and sleep though it might, there came later in the summer ominous sounds like the measured blows of hammers dulled on felt, which, with their repeated shocks, still further loosened the shawl and cracked the teacups. Now and again some glass tinkled in the cupboard, as if a giant voice had shrieked so loud in its agony that tumblers stood inside a cupboard vibrated too. Then again silence fell, and then, night after night, and sometimes in plain midday when the roses were bright and light turned on the wall, its shape clearly there seemed to drop into this silence, this indifference, this integrity, the thud of something falling. A shell exploded. Twenty or thirty young men were blown up in France, among them Andrew Ramsay, whose death, mercifully, was instantaneous. At that season, those who had gone down to pace the beach, and ask of the sea and sky what message they reported, or what vision they affirmed, had to consider, among the usual tokens of divine bounty, the sunset on the sea, the pallor of dawn, the moon rising, fishing-boats against the moon, and children making mud-pies or pelting each other with handfuls of grass, something out of harmony with this jocundity and this serenity. There was the silent apparition of an ashen-coloured ship, for instance, come, gone. There was a purplish stain upon the bland surface of the sea, as if something had boiled and bled invisibly beneath. This intrusion into a scene calculated to stir the most sublime reflections, and lead to the most comfortable conclusions, stayed their pacing. It was difficult blandly to overlook them, to abolish their significance in the landscape, to continue, as one walked by the sea, to marvel how beauty outside mirrored beauty within. Did nature supplement what man advanced? Did she complete what he began? With equal complacence she saw his misery, his meanness, and his torture. 
that dream, of sharing, completing, of finding in solitude on the beach an answer, was then but a reflection in a mirror, and the mirror itself was but the surface glassiness which forms in quiescence when the nobler powers sleep beneath. Impatient, despairing yet loath to go, for beauty offers her lures, has her consolations. To pace the beach was impossible, contemplation was unendurable, the mirror was broken. Mr. Carmichael brought out a volume of poems that spring, which had an unexpected success. The war, people said, had revived their interest in poetry. End of section 10 Section 11 of To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 Night after night, summer and winter, the torment of storms, the arrow-like stillness of fine, had there been any one to listen, from the upper rooms of the empty house, only gigantic chaos streaked with lightning could have been heard tumbling and tossing, as the winds and waves disported themselves like the amorphous bulks of leviathans, whose brows are pierced by no light of reason, and mounted one on top of another, and lunged and plunged in the darkness or the daylight, for night and day, month and year ran shapelessly together, in idiot games, until it seemed as if the universe were battling and tumbling, in brute confusion and wanton lust aimlessly by itself. In spring the garden urns, casually filled with wind-blown plants, were gay as ever. Violets came and daffodils. But the stillness and the brightness of the day were as strange as the chaos and tumult of night, with the trees standing there, and the flowers standing there, looking before them, looking up, yet beholding nothing, eyeless and so terrible. CHAPTER Eight thinking no harm, for the family would not come, never again, some said, and the house would be sold at Michaelmas, perhaps, Mrs. MacNab stooped and picked a bunch of flowers to take home with her. She laid them on the table while she dusted. She was fond of flowers. It was a pity to let them waste. Suppose the house were sold. She stood, arms akimbo, in front of the looking-glass. It would want seeing to, it would. There it had stood all these years without a soul in it. The books and things were mouldy, for, what with the war and help being hard to get, the house had not been cleaned as she could have wished. It was beyond one person's strength to get it straight now. She was too old. Her legs pained her. All those books needed to be laid out on the grass in the sun. There was plaster fallen in the hall. The rain-pipe had blocked over the study window and let the water in, the carpet was ruined quite. But people should come themselves, they should have sent somebody down to see. For there were clothes in the cupboards, they had left clothes in all the bedrooms. What was she to do with them? They had the moth in them, Mrs. Ramsay's things. Poor lady! She would never want them again. She was dead, they said, years ago, in London. There was the old grey cloak she wore gardening. Mrs. MacNab fingered it. She could see her, as she came up the drive with the washing, stooping over her flowers. The garden was a pitiful sight now, 
all run to riot, and rabbits scuttling at you out of the beds. She could see her with one of the children by her in that grey cloak. There were boots and shoes, and a brush and comb left on the dressing-table, for all the world as if she expected to come back to-morrow. She had died very sudden at the end, they said. And once they had been coming, but had put off coming, what with the war, and travel being so difficult these days, they had never come all these years, just sent her money, but never wrote, never came, and expected to find things as they had left them, ah, oh dear! Why, the dressing-table drawers were full of things—she pulled them open—handkerchiefs, bits of ribbon. Yes, she could see Mrs. Ramsay as she came up the drive with the washing. "'Good evening, Mrs. McNab,' she would say. She had a pleasant way with her. The girls all liked her. But, dear, many things had changed since then—she shut the drawer—many families had lost their dearest. So she was dead, and Mr. Andrew killed, and Miss Prue dead, too, they said, with her first baby. But every one had lost some one these years. Prices had gone up shamefully, and didn't come down again, neither. She could well remember her in her grey cloak. "'Good evening, Mrs. McNab,' she said, and told Cook to keep a plate of milk-soup for her. Quite thought she wanted it, carrying that heavy basket all the way up from town. She could see her now, stooping over her flowers, and faint and flickering, like a yellow beam or the circle at the end of a telescope, a lady in a grey cloak, stooping over her flowers, went wandering over the bedroom wall, up the dressing-table, across the washstand, as Mrs. McNab hobbled and ambled, dusting, straightening. And Cook's name now—Mildred, Marion, some name like that—ah! she had forgotten. She did forget things. Fiery, like all red-haired women. Many a laugh they had had. She was always welcome in the kitchen. She made them laugh, she did. Things were better than now. She sighed. There was too much work for one woman. She wagged her head this side and that. This had been the nursery. Why, it was all damp in here. The plaster was falling. Whatever did they want to hang a beast's skull there? Gone mouldy, too. And rats in all the attics. The rain came in. But they never sent, never came. Some of the locks had gone, so the doors banged. She didn't like to be up here at dusk alone, neither. It was too much for one woman. Too much, too much. She creaked. She moaned. She banged the door. She turned the key in the lock and left the house alone, shut up, locked. CHAPTER Nine. The house was left, the house was deserted. It was left like a shell on a sand-hill, to fill with dry salt-grains, now that life had left it. The long night seemed to have set in, the trifling airs nibbling, the clammy breaths fumbling, seemed to have triumphed. The saucepan had rusted, and the mat decayed. Toads had nosed their way in. Idly, aimlessly, the swaying shawl swung to and fro. A thistle thrust itself between the tiles in the larder. The swallows nested in the drawing-room. The floor was strewn with straw. The plaster fell in shovelfuls. 
rafters were laid bare, rats carried off this and that to gnaw behind the wainscots. Tortoiseshell butterflies burst from the chrysalis and pattered their life out on the window-pane. Poppies sowed themselves among the dahlias, the lawn waved with long grass, giant artichokes towered among roses, a fringed carnation flowered among the cabbages, while the gentle tapping of a weed at the window had become, on winter's nights, a drumming from sturdy trees and thorned briars which made the whole room green in summer. What power could now prevent the fertility, the insensibility of nature? Mrs. McNabb's dream of a lady, of a child, of a plate of milk soup? It had wavered over the walls like a spot of sunlight, and vanished. She had locked the door. She had gone. It was beyond the strength of one woman, she said. They never sent. They never wrote. There were things up there rotting in the drawers. It was a shame to leave them so, she said. The place was gone to rack and ruin. Only the lighthouse beam entered the rooms for a moment, sent its sudden stare over bed and wall in the darkness of winter, looked with equanimity at the thistle and the swallow, the rat and the straw. Nothing now withstood them, nothing said no to them. Let the wind blow, let the poppy seed itself and the carnation mate with the cabbage, let the swallow build in the drawing-room, and the thistle thrust aside the tiles, and the butterfly sun itself on the faded chintz of the armchairs. Let the broken glass and the china lie out on the lawn and be tangled over with grass and wild berries. For now had come that moment, that hesitation when dawn trembles and night pauses, when, if a feather alight in the scale, it will be weighed down. One feather, and the house, sinking, falling, would have turned and pitched downwards to the depths of darkness. In the ruined room picnickers would have lit their kettles, lovers sought shelter there, lying on the bare boards, and the shepherd stored his dinner on the bricks, and the tramp slept with his coat round him to ward off the cold. Then the roof would have fallen, briars and hemlocks would have blotted out path, step, and window, would have grown unequally but lustily over the mound, until some trespasser, losing his way, could have told only by a red-hot poker among the nettles, or a scrap of china in the hemlock, that here, once, someone had lived, there had been a house. If the feather had fallen, if it had tipped the scale downwards, the whole house would have plunged to the depths to lie upon the sands of oblivion. But there was a force working, something not highly conscious, something that leered, something that lurched, something not inspired to go about its work with dignified ritual or solemn chanting. Mrs. McNabb groaned, Mrs. Bast creaked. They were old, they were stiff, their legs ached. They came with their brooms and pails at last, they got to work. All of a sudden, would Mrs. McNabb see that the house was ready, one of the young ladies wrote, would she get this done, would she get that done, all in a hurry? They might be coming for the summer, had left everything to the last, expected to find things as they had left them. Slowly and painfully, with broom and pail, mopping, scouring, Mrs. McNabb, Mrs. Bast, stayed the corruption and the rot, rescued from the pool of time that was fast closing over them, now a basin, 
now a cupboard, fetched up from oblivion all the Waverley novels and a tea-set one morning, in the afternoon restored to sun and air a brass fender and a set of steel fire-irons. George, Mrs. Bast's son, caught the rats and cut the grass. They had the builders. Attended with the creaking of hinges and the screeching of bolts, the slamming and banging of damp-swollen woodwork, some rusty, laborious berth seemed to be taking place, as the women, stooping, rising, groaning, singing, slapped and slammed, upstairs now, now down in the cellars. Oh, they said, the work! They drank their tea in the bedroom sometimes, or in the study, breaking off work at midday with the smudge on their faces, and their old hands clasped and cramped with the broom-handles. Flopped on chairs they contemplated, now the magnificent conquest over taps and bath, now the more arduous, more partial triumph over long rows of books, black as ravens once, now white-stained, breeding pale mushrooms and secreting furtive spiders. Once more, as she felt the tea warm in her, the telescope fitted itself to Mrs. MacNab's eyes, and in a ring of light she saw the old gentleman, lean as a rake, wagging his head, as she came up with the washing. Talking to himself, she supposed, on the lawn. He never noticed her. Some said he was dead, some said she was dead. Which was it? Mrs. Bast didn't know for certain, either. The young gentleman was dead. That she was sure. She had read his name in the papers. There was the cook now, Mildred, Marian, some such name as that, a red-headed woman, quick-tempered like all her sort, but kind, too, if you knew the way with her. Many a laugh they had had together. She saved a plate of soup for Maggie, a bite of ham sometimes, whatever was over. They lived well in those days. They had everything they wanted. Glibly, jovially, with the tea hot in her, she unwound her ball of memories, sitting in the wicker armchair by the nursery fender. There was always plenty doing, people in the house, twenty staying sometimes, and washing up till long past midnight. Mrs. Bast—she had never known them, had lived in Glasgow at that time—wondered, putting her cup down, whatever they hung that beast's skull there for—shot in foreign parts, no doubt. It might well be, said Mrs. MacNab, wantoning on with her memories. They had friends in eastern countries, gentlemen staying there ladies in evening dress. She had seen them once through the dining-room door, all sitting at dinner. Twenty, she dared say, all in their jewellery, and she asked to stay help wash up, might be till after midnight. Ah, said Mrs. Bast, they'd find it changed. She leant out of the window. She watched her son George scything the grass. They might well ask what had been done to it, seeing how old Kennedy was supposed to have charge of it, and then his leg got so bad after he fell from the cart, and then perhaps no one for a year, or the better part of one, and then Davy MacDonald, and seeds might be sent, but who should say if they were ever planted? They'd find it changed. She watched her son scything. He was a great one for work, one of those quiet ones. Well, they must be getting along with the cupboards, she supposed. They hauled themselves up. At last, after days of labour within, 
of cutting and digging without. Dusters were flicked from the windows, the windows were shut too, keys were turned all over the house, the front door was banged, it was finished. And now, as if the cleaning and the scrubbing and the scything and the mowing had drowned it, there rose that half-heard melody, that intermittent music which the ear half catches but lets fall, a bark, a bleat, irregular, intermittent yet somehow related, the hum of an insect, the tremor of cut grass, dissevered yet somehow belonging, the jar of a door-beetle, the squeak of a wheel, loud, low but mysteriously related, which the ear strains to bring together, and is always on the verge of harmonising, but they are never quite heard, never fully harmonised, and at last, in the evening, one after another the sounds die out, and the harmony falters and silence falls. With the sunset sharpness was lost, and, like mist rising, quiet rose, quiet spread, the wind settled, loosely the world shook itself down to sleep, darkly here, without a light to it, save what came green suffused through leaves, or pale on the white flowers in the bed by the window. Lily Briscoe had her bag carried up to the house late one evening in September. Mr. Carmichael came by the same train. CHAPTER Ten. Then, indeed, peace had come. Messages of peace breathed from the sea to the shore. Never to break its sleep any more, to lull it rather more deeply to rest, and whatever the dreamers dreamt holily, dreamt wisely, to confirm—what else was it murmuring—as Lily Briscoe laid her head on the pillow in the clean still room and heard the sea. Through the open window the voice of the beauty of the world came murmuring, too softly to hear exactly what it said, but what mattered if the meaning were plain, entreating the sleepers—the house was full again, Mrs. Beckwith was staying there, also Mr. Carmichael—if they would not actually come down to the beach itself, at least to lift the blind and look out. They would see then night flowing down in purple, his head crowned, his sceptre jewelled and how, in his eyes, a child might look. And if they still faltered—Lily was tired out with travelling, and slept almost at once, but Mr. Carmichael read a book by candlelight—if they still said no, that it was vapour, this splendour of his, and that the dew had more power than he, and they preferred sleeping. Gently then, without complaint or argument, the voice would sing its song. Gently the waves would break. Lily heard them in her sleep. Tenderly the light fell—it seemed to come through her eyelids. And it all looked, Mr. Carmichael thought, shutting his book, falling asleep, much as it used to look. Indeed the voice might resume, as the curtains of dark wrapped themselves over the house, over Mrs. Beckwith, Mr. Carmichael, and Lily Briscoe, so that they lay with several folds of blackness on their eyes. Why not accept this? be content with this, acquiesce and resign. The sigh of all the seas breaking in measure round the isles soothed them. The night wrapped them, nothing broke their sleep, until, the birds beginning and the dawn weaving their thin voices into its whiteness, a cart grinding, a dog somewhere barking, the sun lifted the curtains, 
broke the veil on their eyes, and Lily Briscoe stirring in her sleep. She clutched at her blankets as a faller clutches at the turf on the edge of a cliff. Her eyes opened wide. Here she was again, she thought, sitting bolt upright in bed. Awake! End of section 11「To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part three, The Lighthouse. Chapter one. "'What does it mean, then? What can it all mean?' Lily Briscoe asked herself, wondering whether, since she had been left alone, it behoved her to go to the kitchen to fetch another cup of coffee or wait here. "'What does it mean?' A catchword that was caught up from some book, fitting her thought loosely, for she could not, this first morning with the Ramses, contract her feelings, could only make a phrase resound to cover the blankness of her mind, until these vapours had shrunk. For really, what did she feel, come back after all these years, and Mrs. Ramsay dead? Nothing, nothing, nothing that she could express at all. She had come late last night, when it was all mysterious, dark. Now she was awake, at her old place at the breakfast-table, but alone. It was very early, too, not yet eight. There was this expedition. They were going to the lighthouse, Mr. Ramsay, Cam, and James. They should have gone already, they had to catch the tide or something. And Cam was not ready, and James was not ready, and Nancy had forgotten to order the sandwiches, and Mr. Ramsay had lost his temper and banged out of the room. "'What's the use of going now?' he had stormed. Nancy had vanished. There he was, marching up and down the terrace in a rage. One seemed to hear doors slamming and voices calling all over the house. Now Nancy burst in, and asked, looking round the room, in a queer, half-dazed, half-desperate way, "'What does one send to the lighthouse?' as if she were forcing herself to do what she despaired of ever being able to do. What does one send to the lighthouse, indeed? At any other time Lily could have suggested reasonably tea, tobacco, newspapers. But this morning everything seemed so extraordinarily queer, that a question like Nancy's, what does one send to the lighthouse, opened doors in one's mind that went banging and swinging to and fro, and made one keep asking, in a stupefied gape, what does one send, what does one do, why is one sitting here after all? Sitting alone, for Nancy went out again, among the clean cups at the long table, she felt cut off from other people, and able only to go on watching, asking, wondering. The house, the place, the morning, all seemed strangers to her. She had no attachment here, she felt, no relations with it. Anything might happen, and whatever did happen—a step outside, a voice calling, "'It's not in the cupboard, it's on the landing,' someone cried—was a question, as if the link that usually bound things together had been cut, and they floated up here, down there, off, anyhow. How aimless it was, how chaotic! How unreal it was, she thought, looking at her empty coffee-cup. Mrs. Ramsay dead. Andrew killed. 
Prue dead, too. Repeat it as she might, it roused no feeling in her. "'And we all get together in a house like this on a morning like this,' she said, looking out of the window. It was a beautiful still day. CHAPTER Two. Suddenly Mr. Ramsay raised his head as he passed, and looked straight at her, with his distraught wild gaze which was yet so penetrating, as if he saw you, for one second, for the first time, for ever. And she pretended to drink out of her empty coffee-cup, so as to escape him, to escape his demand on her, to put aside a moment longer that imperious need. And he shook his head at her, and strode on. Alone she heard him say. Perished, she heard him say. And like everything else this strange morning, the words became symbols, wrote themselves all over the grey-green walls. If only she could put them together, she felt, write them out in some sentence, then she would have got at the truth of things. Old Mr. Carmichael came padding softly in, fetched his coffee, took his cup, and made off to sit in the sun. The extraordinary unreality was frightening, but it was also exciting. Going to the lighthouse. But what does one send to the lighthouse? Perished. Alone. The grey-green light on the wall opposite. The empty places. Such were some of the parts, but how bring them together? she asked. As if any interruption would break the frail shape she was building on the table, she turned her back to the window, lest Mr. Ramsay should see her. She must escape somewhere, be alone somewhere. Suddenly she remembered. When she had sat there last, ten years ago, there had been a little sprig or leaf-pattern on the tablecloth, which she had looked at in a moment of revelation. There had been a problem about a foreground of a picture. Move the tree to the middle, she had said. She had never finished that picture. She would paint that picture now. It had been knocking about in her mind all these years. Where were her paints? she wondered. Her paints, yes. She had left them in the hall last night. She would start at once. She got up quickly, before Mr. Ramsay turned. She fetched herself a chair. She pitched her easel with her precise, old-maidish movements on the edge of the lawn, not too close to Mr. Carmichael, but close enough for his protection. Yes, it must have been precisely here that she had stood ten years ago. There was the wall, the hedge, the tree. The question was of some relation between those masses. She had borne it in her mind all these years. It seemed as if the solution had come to her. She knew now what she wanted to do. But with Mr. Ramsay bearing down on her, she could do nothing. Every time he approached—he was walking up and down the terrace—ruin approached, chaos approached. She could not paint. She stooped. She turned. She took up this rag. She squeezed that tube. But all she did was to ward him off for a moment. He made it impossible for her to do anything. For if she gave him the least chance, if he saw her disengaged a moment, looking his way a moment, he would be on her, saying, as he had said last night, "'You find us much changed.' Last night he had got up and stopped before her, and said that. 
dumb and staring though they had all sat, the six children whom they used to call after the kings and queens of England, the red, the fair, the wicked, the ruthless, she felt how they raged under it. Kind old Mrs. Beckwith said something sensible. But it was a house full of unrelated passions, she had felt that all the evening. And on top of this chaos Mr. Ramsay got up, pressed her hand, and said, "'You will find us much changed.' And none of them had moved or had spoken, but had sat there as if they were forced to let him say it. Only James, certainly the sullen, scowled at the lamp, and Cam screwed her handkerchief round her finger. Then he reminded them that they were going to the lighthouse to-morrow. They must be ready, in the hall, on the stroke of half-past seven. Then, with his hand on the door, he stopped. He turned upon them. Did they not want to go? he demanded. Had they dared say no? He had some reason for wanting it. He would have flung himself tragically backwards into the bitter waters of despair. Such a gift he had for gesture. He looked like a king in exile. Doggedly, James said yes. Cam stumbled more wretchedly. Yes, oh yes, they'd both be ready, they said. And it struck her, this was tragedy. Not Paul's, dust and the shroud, but children coerced, their spirits subdued. James was sixteen, Cam seventeen, perhaps. She had looked round for someone who was not there, for Mrs. Ramsay, presumably. But there was only kind Mrs. Beckwith, turning over her sketches under the lamp. Then, being tired, her mind still rising and falling with the sea, the taste and smell that places have after long absence possessing her, the candles wavering in her eyes, she had lost herself and gone under. It was a wonderful night, starlit. The waves sounded as they went upstairs, the moon surprised them, enormous, pale, as they passed the staircase window. She had slept at once. She set her clean canvas firmly upon the easel, as a barrier, frail, but she hoped sufficiently substantial to ward off Mr. Ramsay and his exactingness. She did her best to look, when his back was turned, at her picture, that line there that mass there. But it was out of the question. Let him be fifty feet away, let him not even speak to you, let him not even see you. He permeated, he prevailed, he imposed himself. He changed everything. She could not see the colour, she could not see the lines. Even with his back turned to her, she could only think, but he'll be down on me in a moment, demanding something she felt she could not give him. She rejected one brush, she chose another. When would those children come? When would they all be off? she fidgeted. That man, she thought, her anger rising in her, never gave, that man took. She, on the other hand, would be forced to give. Mrs. Ramsay had given. Giving, giving, giving she had died and had left all this. Really, she was angry with Mrs. Ramsay. With the brush slightly trembling in her fingers, she looked at the hedge, the step, the wall. It was all Mrs. Ramsay's doing. She was dead. 
Here was Lily, at forty-four, wasting her time, unable to do a thing, standing there, playing at painting, playing at the one thing one did not play at, and it was all Mrs. Ramsay's fault. She was dead. The step where she used to sit was empty. She was dead. But why repeat this over and over again? Why be always trying to bring up some feeling she had not got? There was a kind of blasphemy in it. It was all dry, all withered, all spent. They ought not to have asked her. She ought not to have come. One can't waste one's time at forty-four, she thought. She hated playing at painting. A brush, the one dependable thing in a world of strife, ruin, chaos, that one should not play with, knowingly even. She detested it. But he made her. You shan't touch your canvas, he seemed to say, bearing down on her, till you've given me what I want of you. Here he was, close upon her again, greedy, distraught. Well, thought Lily in despair, letting her right hand fall at her side. It would be simpler then to have it over. Surely she could imitate from recollection the glow, the rhapsody, the self-surrender she had seen on so many women's faces—on Mrs. Ramsay's, for instance. When on some occasion like this they blazed up, she could remember the look on Mrs. Ramsay's face, into a rapture of sympathy, of delight in the reward they had, which, though the reason of it escaped her, evidently conferred on them the most supreme bliss of which human nature was capable. Here he was, stopped by her side. She would give him what she could. CHAPTER Three. She seemed to have shrivelled slightly, he thought. She looked a little skimpy, wispy, but not unattractive. He liked her. There had been some talk of her marrying William Banks once, but nothing had come of it. His wife had been fond of her. He had been a little out of temper, too, at breakfast. And then—and then—this was one of those moments when an enormous need urged him, without being conscious what it was, to approach any woman, to force them—he did not care how—his need was so great—to give him what he wanted—sympathy. Was anybody looking after her, he said, had she everything she wanted? "'Oh, thanks, everything,' said Lily Briscoe nervously. No, she could not do it. She ought to have floated off instantly upon some wave of sympathetic expansion. The pressure on her was tremendous. But she remained stuck. There was an awful pause. They both looked at the sea. Why, thought Mr. Ramsay, should she look at the sea when I am here? She hoped it would be calm enough for them to land at the lighthouse, she said. The lighthouse! The lighthouse! What's that got to do with it? he thought impatiently. Instantly, with the force of some primeval gust—for really he could not restrain himself any longer—there issued from him such a groan that any other woman in the whole world would have done something, said something. All except myself, thought Lily girding at herself bitterly, who am not a woman, 
but a peevish, ill-tempered, dried-up old maid, presumably. Mr. Ramsay sighed to the full. He waited. Was she not going to say anything? Did she not see what he wanted from her? Then he said he had a particular reason for wanting to go to the lighthouse. His wife used to send the men things. There was a poor boy with a tuberculous hip, the lightkeeper's son. He sighed profoundly. He sighed significantly. All Lily wished was that this enormous flood of grief, this insatiable hunger for sympathy, this demand that she should surrender herself up to him entirely, and even so he had sorrows enough to keep her supplied for ever, should leave her, should be diverted. She kept looking at the house, hoping for an interruption, before it swept her down in its flow. "'Such expeditions,' said Mr. Ramsay, scraping the ground with his toe, "'are very painful.' Still Lily said nothing. "'She is a stock, she is a stone,' he said to himself. "'They are very exhausting,' he said, looking, with a sickly look that nauseated her. He was acting, she felt, this great man was dramatising himself. At his beautiful hands. It was horrible, it was indecent. Would they never come, she asked, for she could not sustain this enormous weight of sorrow, support these heavy draperies of grief. He had assumed a pose of extreme decrepitude. He even tottered a little as he stood there, a moment longer. Still she could say nothing. The whole horizon seemed swept bare of objects to talk about. Could only feel, amazedly, as Mr. Ramsay stood there, how his gaze seemed to fall dolefully over the sunny grass and discolour it, and cast over the rubicund, drowsy, entirely contented figure of Mr. Carmichael, reading a French novel on a deck-chair, a veil of crape, as if such an existence, flaunting its prosperity in a world of woe, were enough to provoke the most dismal thoughts of all. "'Look at him,' he seemed to be saying, "'look at me!' And indeed all the time he was feeling, "'Think of me, think of me!' Ah, could that bulk only be wafted alongside of them, Lily wished. Had she only pitched her easel a yard or two closer to him, a man, any man, would staunch this effusion, would stop these lamentations. A woman, she had provoked this horror. A woman, she should have known how to deal with it. It was immensely to her discredit, sexually, to stand there dumb. One said, what did one say? Oh, Mr. Ramsay, dear Mr. Ramsay! That was what that kind old lady who sketched, Mrs. Beckwith, would have said, instantly and rightly. But no! They stood there, isolated from the rest of the world. His immense self-pity, his demand for sympathy poured and spread itself in pools at her feet, and all she did, miserable sinner that she was, was to draw her skirts a little closer round her ankles, lest she should get wet. In complete silence she stood there, grasping her paintbrush. Heaven could never be sufficiently praised. She heard sounds in the house. James and Cam must be coming. But Mr. Ramsay, as if he knew that his time ran short, 
exerted upon her solitary figure the immense pressure of his concentrated woe, his age, his frailty, his desolation, when suddenly, tossing his head impatiently, in his annoyance, for after all what woman could resist him, he noticed that his bootlaces were untied. Remarkable boots they were, too, Lily thought, looking down at them, sculptured, colossal, like everything that Mr. Ramsay wore, from his frayed tie to his half-buttoned waistcoat, his own indisputably. She could see them walking to his room of their own accord, expressive in his absence of pathos, surliness, ill-temper, charm. "'What beautiful boots!' she exclaimed. She was ashamed of herself. To praise his boots when he asked her to solace his soul, when he had shown her his bleeding hands, his lacerated heart, and asked her to pity them, then to say, cheerfully, "'Ah, but what beautiful boots you wear!' deserved, she knew, and she looked up expecting to get it in one of his sudden roars of ill-temper, complete annihilation. Instead, Mr. Ramsay smiled. His pall, his draperies, his infirmities fell from him. Ah, yes, he said, holding his foot up for her to look at. They were first-rate boots. There was only one man in England who could make boots like that. Boots are among the chief curses of mankind, he said. Bootmakers make it their business, he exclaimed, to cripple and torture the human foot. They are also the most obstinate and perverse of mankind. It had taken him the best part of his youth to get boots made as they should be made. He would have her observe—he lifted his right foot, and then his left—that she had never seen boots made quite that shape before. They were made of the finest leather in the world, also. Most leather was mere brown paper and cardboard. He looked complacently at his foot, still held in the air. They had reached, she felt, a sunny island where peace dwelt, sanity reigned, and the sun for ever shone, the blessed island of good boots. Her heart warmed to him. "'Now let me see if you can tie a knot,' he said. He pooh-poohed her feeble system. He showed her his own invention. Once you tied it, it never came undone. Three times he knotted her shoe, three times he unknotted it. Why, at this completely inappropriate moment, when he was stooping over her shoe, should she be so tormented with sympathy for him that, as she stooped too, the blood rushed to her face, and, thinking of her callousness—she had called him a play-actor—she felt her eyes swell and tingle with tears. Thus occupied, he seemed to her a figure of infinite pathos. He tied knots he bought boots. There was no helping Mr. Ramsay on the journey he was going. But now, just as she wished to say something—could have said something, perhaps—here they were, Cam and James. They appeared on the terrace. They came lagging, side by side, a serious, melancholy couple. But why was it like that that they came? She could not help feeling annoyed with them, they might have come more cheerfully. They might have given him what, now that they were off, she would not have the chance of giving him. 
for she felt a sudden emptiness, a frustration. Her feeling had come too late. There it was, ready, but he no longer needed it. He had become a very distinguished, elderly man, who had no need of her whatsoever. She felt a snubbed. He slung a knapsack round his shoulders. He shared out the parcels. There were a number of them, ill-tied in brown paper. He sent Cam for a cloak. He had all the appearance of a leader making ready for an expedition. Then, wheeling about, he led the way with his firm military tread, in those wonderful boots, carrying brown paper parcels, down the path, his children following him. They looked, she thought, as if fate had devoted them to some stern enterprise, and they went to it, still young enough to be drawn acquiescent in their father's wake, obediently, but with a pallor in their eyes, which made her feel that they suffered something beyond their years in silence. So they passed the edge of the lawn, and it seemed to Lily that she watched a procession go by, drawn on by some stress of common feeling, which made it, faltering and flagging as it was, a little company bound together, and strangely impressive to her. Politely, but very distantly, Mr. Ramsay raised his hand and saluted her as they passed. But what a face, she thought, immediately finding the sympathy which she had not been asked to give, troubling her for expression. What had made it like that? Thinking, night after night, she supposed, about the reality of kitchen tables, she added, remembering the symbol which in her vagueness as to what Mr. Ramsay did think about, Andrew had given her. He had been killed by the splinter of a shell instantly, she bethought her. The kitchen table was something visionary, austere, something bare, hard, not ornamental. There was no colour to it, it was all edges and angles, it was uncompromisingly plain. But Mr. Ramsay kept always his eyes fixed upon it, never allowed himself to be distracted or deluded, until his face became worn too, and ascetic, and partook of this unornamented beauty which so deeply impressed her. Then, she recalled, standing where he had left her, holding her brush, worries had fretted it, not so nobly. He must have had his doubts about that table, she supposed, whether the table was a real table, whether it was worth the time he gave to it, whether he was able, after all, to find it. He had had doubts, she felt, or he would have asked less of people. That was what they talked about late at night sometimes, she suspected, and then next day Mrs. Ramsay looked tired, and Lily flew into a rage with him over some absurd little thing. But now he had nobody to talk to about that table, or his boots, or his knots, and he was like a lion seeking whom he could devour, and his face had that touch of desperation, of exaggeration in it, which alarmed her, and made her pull her skirts about her. And then, she recalled, there was that sudden revivification, that sudden flare, when she praised his boots, that sudden recovery of vitality and interest in ordinary human things, which too passed and changed, for he was always changing and hid nothing, into that other final phase which was new to her, and had, she owned, 
made herself ashamed of her own irritability, when it seemed as if he had shed worries and ambitions, and the hope of sympathy and the desire for praise, had entered some other region, was drawn on, as if by curiosity, in dumb colloquy, whether with himself or another, at the head of that little procession out of one's range. An extraordinary face. The gate banged. End of section 12